Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. We are excited to be with you here as we roll into the new year. Uh, Lou and I are anxious to chat with uh, Dr. Chris Keel, who joins us once a month, to talk about the credit managers index and whatever else is happening in the economy and how things look. And Chris is uh, usually a bright and shining star who finds all of the happy news to report. So, Chris, welcome again to Manufacturing Talk Radio. No, I, I think you're confusing me with my evil twin, Skippy. Um, I, I'm the one that dresses all in black and, and finds the dark cloud behind every silver lining. <laughs> the, the mortician behind the financial exactly, buzz of exactly. the, uh, the economy. Okay, well, yeah, I'm, 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 glad. I'm, I'm proud of being a, a dismal scientist. Uh, well, you had good news this week with uh, uh, the, the Ultima fuel out at uh, four billion miles away, so that should make you exactly. happy. Exactly, exactly. You know, if all else fails, we can all just move there. You know, so. that's true. It only takes seventeen years to get there, but that's okay. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, you got anything good to tell us? Because the ISM this month hasn't exactly been uh, the the best that it could have been. Um, no, that's so maybe, true. That's true. So give us some happy you know, news and what, some yeah, good jokes. Some happy news. Well, you know, what can I say? The Cleveland Browns are better than they used to be. Um, that Is that a football team? Um, yeah, yeah. So the the CMI was a little more upbeat, I think, than the PMI this month. Um, what we're starting to see nationally is kind of predictable. It was the sort of thing that we talked about even a year ago when we were still looking at the tax cuts and, you know, what are they going to mean and all that sort of stuff because the fear was that the tax cuts were going to sort of function like a sugar rush, that they were going to be really, really fun for a few months, and then the effect would kind of taper off because the economy was already growing. It didn't really necessarily need a stimulus, you know, but it certainly enjoyed it. And businesses spent and consumers spent, and, and we had a pretty good 2018. What's happening now is that we're kind of going back to where we might have been at the end of 2017, it's not bad. You know, I like the ISM's index. It's still 54, but it was five points down from what it had been. Still in growth, still middle 50s, still perfectly sound. Um, just kind of like with the, with the CMI, we're still seeing good numbers, uh, particularly in the favorable categories, but not as good as they had been. And, and I think it's, kind of a revert back to the norm that that we're now experiencing the economy without the sugar rush and it's going to be a little bit more of a struggle that and the fact that both the pmi and the cmi were reacting to what's happening internationally our economy is is still doing pretty well but the rest of the world is not doing so well and that ultimately has an impact on the u.s 
because 15 to 16 percent of our GDP is based on export activity. And if people are buying less from us, well, that shows up. Um, we're not as sensitive as Germany, which is 50 percent dependent on exports, but 15, 16 percent is, is nothing to sneeze at either. No, that's a pretty big chunk of uh, $18 trillion. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It certainly has to have an impact. Uh, Chris, when the, the credit manager's index is uh, fluctuating like this, what is the outlook of the credit managers and the people in the accounting department and the CFOs? Uh, are they just kind of tightening their belts, or are they still going to let things flow uh, as it will until things get more dire. Really what happens with the credit managers is that they just become a little more picky. Um, they're very acutely aware of the fact that they can't really pull back very hard if they don't want to jeopardize their own company because, you know, the issuance of credit, it's different than when banks are giving loans. I mean, what you're trying to do is help a client buy your product. I mean, your client wants to buy something expensive. They don't have that money on hand. And so they look at you and say, yeah, I definitely want to buy a machine. I definitely want to buy this inventory. You know, I don't have $800,000 to send you a check today. I want payments. I want to be able to pay this off in 90 days or 120 days or 30 days. And the credit manager is basically trying to figure out a way for this transaction to take place. When things get a little tighter and the economy is not coming, the credit manager sort of has to look at their client's business and say, okay, how likely is it that this guy is going to be able to make the money he thinks he's going to make? And so they begin studying the industry. So if his client is in healthcare, well, the credit manager is going to keep a big sigh of relief and say, okay, I'm covered, I'm good. Healthcare is growing, not a shrinking sector at all. Um, I don't have any problem giving him credit. If the guy is coming at him from the agriculture side, well, the credit manager is like, oh, man, this is not so good. Um, I'm not seeing good news coming from the ag area. You know, those tariffs are going to have an impact on soybean farmers. And, yeah, maybe I'm going to be a little less generous. It's like, no, I'm not going to give you 90 days. I'll give you 30. Um, and, no, I'm not going to give you any discounts. And if you, for some reason, miss a payment, I'm going to be very aggressive in collecting. So it's not like they hunker down, but they just become that much more protective and cautious. Um, The mantra of a credit manager is, it's not a sale until we're paid. (laughs) Yeah, I can believe that. You know, there has been a lot of talk recently. We heard some rumblings of it in 2018. I suspect we'll hear more in 2019 about debt, student loan debt, mm-hmm. um, corporate debt. We had the pleasure of interviewing Jerry Flum, who's the CEO of Credit Risk Monitor, and he was talking about all of the junk bond debt that's out there coming due. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your take on all the corporate debt and junk debt? Is it, is it likely to hurt the economy or crash the economy, or is it just a kind of a hiccup? 
Well, it's it has the potential to be a lot more damaging, and that's that's always the challenge with debt is that as long as you can service your debt, it's not a problem. I mean, it's it's a missed opportunity. I mean, that's one of the the concerns when any sort of entity has debt, whether it's the government or business, is that if you're paying money out just to service the debt that you've taken on, well, that's money that's not available for anything else. As long as you can pay your debts, it's a manageable issue. The fear is that you're saddled with a big debt and then something happens. Your business begins to decline. You have some kind of a hiccup from a natural disaster someplace. Something inhibits the money flow. And suddenly you can't service the debt and it becomes a real drain. You're going to have everything from additional fines and you know it just it becomes a cascade when you can't service your debt well it's very unlikely you'll be able to take on more debt because now you have a bad reputation so it isn't in and of itself a a deadly situation but it, it makes you vulnerable banks become nervous because you have too much exposure people get nervous about banks because they have too much exposure um so the fear at the moment is that you have very, very high corporate debt. Consumer debt is back up to where it used to be. Um, this last Christmas was a very successful one. Retailers had a very good time, which is fine, except that an awful lot of that money was put on credit cards. And so now the consumer has debt the way they had prior to the previous recession. Again, as long as you're making money and the unemployment rate's low and all that stuff, that's no problem. But as we learned in 2008 and 2009, you lose your job, and suddenly that debt is is overwhelming, and you can't you can't service it. So it's not in and of itself bad, but it it just makes you vulnerable. Well, I I think also the government uh, shutdown of 800,000 people who are not going to be getting right. their checks on January 11th is not going to be helpful to the economy. No, and the worst part about that is not really being discussed a lot because the 800,000 that are being furloughed or et cetera, there is a provision that once the the – standoff is over and the government's back to work, they will be paid. You know, they're, they're not being robbed of their money. They just get it late. The ones that we really have to worry about are the almost 45,000 companies that do business with the government. And they are not covered. So if for some reason you have a contract with the government and you're supposed to provide a service and you're not providing that service for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you don't get paid for the service you didn't deliver. I mean, you're just out that money. And so it's like having a client just stiff you for a month or two or however long this lasts and there you have no recourse. And it's just, that's the way it is. And a lot of these are very large companies and they'll take it in stride, but an awful lot of them are very small companies you know, everything from, you know, catering companies to maintenance companies, and this is going to rip a huge hole in their budget. The last government shutdown ended up being responsible for laying off over 60,000 workers 
in private companies because their employers just lost too much money and they had to cut back. Do you you recall how long that one was, Chris? How many? That was, I think it was just a little over two weeks. I mean, so it's about the length we've got now. Um, So it's there's there's quite a bit more at risk than than people realize. Our the last shutdown was more comprehensive and it affected the entire federal government. This one is the partial version, but an awful lot of those private companies that that do work for the government are in those non-essential areas. Um, so they're they're going to feel the pinch because the areas that are exempt. It's Social Security and it's Medicare and it's programs of that nature. There's not as many of those small private companies that are engaged with those parts of the government. Well, last night uh, the Cong- uh, House of Representatives uh, passed two bills, uh, which will probably prove to be nothing. Uh, one being the uh, sh- the shutting down of the shutdown. And the other, uh, uh, I, I forgot the other one already, but it's the shutdown that I'm talking about. What's the likelihood of that going anywhere? Well, those are really two bills that kind of just frame the issue because what you now have is the House representatives under the Democrats saying, here is a solution to the shutdown. We have two bills. One would open up the vast majority of the government uh, for a year uh, would fund it uh, till next year. The second bill was singling out the Department of Homeland Security and would fund it for about a month because the assertion is, and accurately to a degree, is that this whole argument over the border wall is the business of the Department of Homeland Security. So if you have an issue with how border security is being handled, that's the agency that's supposed to handle it. So the notion is that if you want to hold something up over the issue of how you provide border security, this is the place to hold it up. And you turn to DHS and say you need to work this out. And I think also from a practical political point of view, if the average person has kind of a dim understanding of what all the government does, but when you talk about Department of Homeland Security, that's the Border Patrol, that's ICE, that's the Transportation Security Administration. I mean, as a person who flies a lot, I'm not thrilled with the fact that my TSA inspectors aren't being paid. And and it's like, so one, they may become testy, <laughs> which will make flying even more fun, or they may not be taking their job as seriously as they should. It's like, hey, well, you obviously don't care. You don't even want to pay us. Um, so it it just is, it's kind of a, it's, it's like getting into an argument with your neighbor holding their dog hostage. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> stop, you know, and, and get down to the real issue. Chris, I'm just curious, talking about debt, the U.S. government just hit a new high for the, what they call the national debt. It's really the public mm-hmm. debt. And that's the one they talk about at about $22 trillion. What they don't talk about is the $120 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities right. and other right. debt obligations. Uh, you know, this seems just photo by year after year after year. And, and Lou's contention is just, 
<laughs> draw a line through it and take it off the balance sheet because it's never getting paid back. <laughs> what's what's the debt likely to do to us going forward? I mean, our, our credit well, rating is a bit under Obama. What's it likely to be soon? Yeah, it kind of comes back to that argument earlier that, you know, it, it, debt is fine as long as you can pay for it. And the U.S. is in a very unique position, which allows us to get away with things that most countries can't. Most other countries, actually all other countries, if they have a balance of payments imbalance, which is what we have right now, they have to make it up with the use of their reserve currency, and as do we. The thing is, the reserve currency in the world is the dollar. So if you're France or Japan or Botswana, well, you've got to have a dollar account someplace, which is what you use to balance out your payments. We also have to use the dollar, but we have a unique capability. We can print more. <laughs> so it's like yeah. if you had a if you had a big credit card bill, but you had a copy machine in the basement, well, who cares? You know, <laughs> we just print more. We can always sell treasuries. We can always borrow money. And the U.S. is, is, you know, the gold standard when it comes to those sorts of investments. And people say, well, what if there's no demand for treasuries? If it comes to the point where there's no demand for U.S. treasuries, the world has come to an end. We have been invaded by aliens. Volcanoes <laughs> have erupted everywhere. We're dead anyway. Um, so... <laughs> It doesn't really matter. The real issue, again, is opportunity cost. We're spending close to $300 billion a year in debt service. So we can sell all the T-bills we want, but people we sell them to expect to be paid. And, and they are. They're the very first thing that is paid out of the federal budget before Medicare, before Social Security, before anything else. You pay your creditors. So right now it's costing us $300 billion, and it goes up every year. $300 billion would repair every single road, bridge, airport, seaport. I mean, it would completely solve our infrastructure issue. So the way to look at it is having a huge national debt means that we haven't fixed the potholes and don't have money to which we would have if we weren't spending so much of it in debt service. I know that Lou wanted to interject something here, but he may have a muted microphone here. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, like I've said before, I think the way to handle this is uh, basically what you said, is either wipe out the debt and say in small print that we will pay you when we feel like it, or print more <laughs> money, and the money just isn't worth a whole lot. And uh, fix everything that we should be fixing, bridge, bridges, roads, and so on. Take care of Puerto Rico. Take care of uh, New Orleans. And take care of California's woodlands. Um, it, it, we're not doing anything. All we do is Medicare for yeah, everyone. Yeah. The challenge <laughs> has always been that, you know, we can essentially inflate our way out of debt. <clears throat> we can issue enough new money that we have plenty of it that it devalues its 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 worth. The challenge from that perspective of course is that it compromises the export import game, it puts banks at risk, you know, inflation is is never an economist's favorite toy. I mean it's it is 
useful up to a point. Um, countries go through inflationary bouts periodically, almost deliberately, as a way to take some of the pressure off. But it's really hard to kind of reverse that once you've started it. And inflation is, in many ways, a lot more destructive than a recession. People make money during recessions. There are people that emerge in better shape than when it started. Inflation tends to be a universal pain. No matter whether you have money or not, higher prices uh, affect you. And if you're in a limited situation, you have a fixed income or you just don't have the ability to change your pricing, you just get eaten alive by the fact that your costs go up and you can't raise your prices. So it's a it can be a very vicious system. And if you look at a lot of countries in the world that deteriorate into failed states, it's been inflation. I mean, it's Venezuela, it's Iraq during the war, it was Serbia, it was, you know, getting to a place where, well, for once, I mean, the, the Venezuelans simply issued an, an edict at one point saying, whatever your bill says in your pocket, just take out a magic marker and add zeros, as many as you want. There you go. So if you have a if you have a one Bolivar note, make it a billion Bolivar note because it's worth the same. <laughs> Neither right. one of them will get you a cup of coffee. Um, so, you know what you really want when you get high inflation is a goat that you can trade. Yeah, so. One of my complaints, uh, Chris, has been that our uh, government is not and has not since the eighties really promoted uh, with and incentivize it uh, has not promoted export sales. Uh, they had the right. disc corporations and the fist corporations, and uh, we were cooking like, you know, like unbelievable. Uh, they are not doing it now. They're killing XM Bank. The XM Bank is still having issues. Uh, there was something just recently in, news, in the news about them again. And uh, it's hurting us. And certainly if right. they incentivize exports, it would certainly help our balance of trade issues. It definitely would. And that's been a weakness for a long time. I mean, there's an awful lot of companies in the U.S. that really don't care about exports. It's not a key part of their business, and they don't put an emphasis on it. And as a government, we've always been a little bit reluctant to try to manage our foreign trade. Most other countries do it very aggressively. I mean, most notably China. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a lack. I mean, it's, it's delicate. You have to be careful how you incent foreign trade. You, know, you don't want to fall afoul of various rules that are put out by the WTO and the others. But even things that are perfectly legitimate, we're not very good at. We underfund the Export-Import Bank, as you point out. We underfund the Foreign and Commercial Services Department of the Department of Commerce. We we just don't do the sort of thing that other countries routinely do. I mean, I remember years ago, Angela Merkel from Germany was arriving, I think it was Indonesia, and they were asking Germany for money and investments and all this stuff. And as she starts to get off the plane, she notices that they have showed up with brand new Lexus cars to take her into town. And she stops and she said, you're asking Germany for money and you show up with a Japanese car. 
I'm not getting off this plane until you drive up in a Mercedes. I'm German, buddy. I don't represent Japan. And she turned around and went home. And, you know, there's a point at which our own government needs to say, you know, talk about America first, Mr. Trump. You know, start demanding that people buy our stuff. I mean, it's not that hard. And if they're using our money to buy it, then I don't see a real problem with saying, yeah, we'll give you money. And that's what the Export-Import Bank does. You can have a loan. It's real cheap. But you better be buying an American product with it. <laughs> so that uh, that was one of the uh, issues that uh, uh, Israel and the United States had going when we were uh, and are still uh, loaning and giving aid to Israel. It was with the proviso that the money that was given to Israel, Israel had to spend it with in the United States. And they have right. done that. It's very successful. Yep. And, uh, you know, they cannot buy anything from out with our money unless it comes back to us. Um, yeah, I, I mean, guess we have we a have similar to... arrangement with Mexico. Um, the money that we provide to Mexicans is expected to come back to the U.S. and does. So <clears throat> it's, it's not an unusual arrangement. We frequently have this with various countries, but we also not we sort of not necessarily enforce it and that will usually come at the behest of an American company that says, well, look, you know, I'm, I have a subsidiary here in Spain and I want to buy a particular product and it's cheaper if I buy it from France than if I buy it from the U S when the U S has in the past said, okay, that's fine. It makes sense to us. Instead of saying, well, yeah, I'm sure it is cheaper out of France, but you're using American money. So by God, buy the American product. If you want to buy it cheap from France, be our guest. Use somebody else's money. You know, so it, it's not like you're prohibiting somebody from making intelligent decisions. You're just saying, well, if you, it's kind of like having a contest just with your teenagers. Like if you want an allowance, you have to do some work. <laughs> and the no, I want an allowance and not do any work. It doesn't work that way, Skippy. Um, if you want my money, mow the lawn. So, well, we'll it's find good, out how well that works with the uh, new Congress who, who yeah, wants exactly, to, who wants to do uh, Medicare for all, and we'll see how much of everybody else's money they can use before they run out. Chris, we appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio every month, and uh, we'll be talking again to you in the near future. But thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're so very welcome. And thank you, and again, have a good new year. And uh, we will be talking to you uh, probably later in the week. Very good. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Very good, Chris. Thanks again. All right. We'll talk to you later. All righty. And for all of our listeners, uh, thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can find all of our episodes at mfgtalkradio.com. You can find the episodes that are done for Women in Manufacturing, which is a fascinating compilation of interviews at womenandmfg.com. We invite you to listen to that. Next week, we've got a new show launching called Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. If you're not familiar with Cliff, he used to be with the Manufacturing Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. He was their chief economist, and he is now going to join us with his own show. 
And we've got a couple of other shows uh, being prepared, so stay tuned. And again, thanks for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.